0: morning. <laughs> uh, my name is uh, Ruben, and uh, my wife and I are members here at November since 2019. And uh, it's a nerve wracking privilege to share the word. <laughs> While I'm quite glad, I mean, uh, you probably do not feel the amount of in my heart but, yeah. um, Today uh, we are looking at verses 1 to 22 from Luke chapter 9 and um, borrowing a verse from the previous uh, chapter after Jesus had come the storm. The disciple asks who then is this man? And with that be part of our study of the book of Luke and his Catholics. Excuse me. Many years ago, um, ABC television in the United States, uh, TV network, deemed a special. Not sure, this probably is my time, so you kids don't know the name. (laughs) So uh, Peter Jennings, one of then ABC's TV personalities went on a search for the real Jesus. Um, supposedly, this was an effort to find out who the man is. Unfortunately, he asked the people who did not know. People who did not know Jesus and who did not know who he was. And not surprisingly, he never found the real Jesus, and was not able to answer the same question which we will find later. The tetrarch of Galilee, Heron, asked, "Who is this man?" And in a typical self-gratifying post-modern mentality of television today, he was content with the search, even though there was no answer. It yielded no answer, he then offered it to America as a substantial way to deal with Jesus. Just ask the question, don't expect an answer. It is almost similar to the dialogue between Jesus and Pilate, when Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth, and then he turned around and never expected an answer. The passage we read today is is actually, well, it is tragically sad for anyone who does not know the answer to that question because it affects his or her eternal destiny. And
1: on the answer to the question, who is this man, hinges
0: everyone's eternity, whether it will be spent in hell or in heaven. And the passage we read today is just so, so rich. Um, that you know we could perhaps take so many key messages from this. Just the first few passages, we could talk about the twelve ordinary men, and we could spend maybe sermons and sermons on this. But just for today, I would submit that one key message I'd like to pick up from this is just the last line of the passage that says, "Jesus is the Christ of God. Jesus is the Christ of God," and through the different portions of scripture, we will pick up, and I will pick up a couple of observations from different passages, uh, portions of, or verses, and uh, I'll, I submit five different observations to, starting with verses one to six. Reading the text, if you could kindly follow along uh, in your bulletin, verses one to six, and he called the 12 together, And gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave, that town shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And then he and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Just a little bit of, of context, we come to a point which is almost penultimate to a shift in Jesus' ministry because from Luke nine fifty one, Jesus starts shifting his eyes to Jerusalem and makes his way towards that last week in his life. So after his victory over Satan in the wilderness, he begins his ministry. He ministers in the years of Nazareth, and I think you remember, I think Joe preached on this, our brother Joe, Nazareth and Capernaum. And then he made a notable visit again to Nazareth. Um, And then looking back on the locate, um, last week, our brother Peter spoke of our Lord Jesus as the Lord of the natural, which is those disasters, disease, and death, and the spiritual, so that even demon, over demons and demonic powers. However, prior to this call in verse 1, Mark captures an intervening activity where Jesus took his second trip to his hometown in Jerusalem. So, you see, uh, Luke is quite rushed in going to the question, who is this man? So he leaves out some details in book, and we will find that out later, even as we move about when Jesus feeds the five thousand. So he skips going back to Nazareth, where he preached from and did in Luke four, he preached from the synagogue, the passage that we read earlier that today, the scripture is fulfilled in your life. So we pick up this section in the ministry, and by all accounts, at this stage, all the, 30, all the 36 months in his ministry, this is now the 18th month. So there are only 18 months to go. And by, uh, at the time, Galilee is approximately thirty two hundred square kilometers. It's half the size of Shanghai, our time. 204 villages, a number of people And up until this time It has always been a one-man show If you want a Preacher, only one, that's Jesus Because at this time, John the Baptist Already lost his life So there's only one preacher There's only one healer, there's only one Power over demons, and there is Only one who preaches The kingdom of God, and it's only Jesus 18 months to go And so now, he calls The twelve says, boys, now is the time. And so, a couple of observations in this call, he multiplies himself, or his ministry, with twelve. One of the things that really fascinates me is he calls the twelve, gives them power over demons um, to cure diseases, and Judas is still with them. Isn't that, it just baffles me how Jesus Runs a team, including somebody who would take him to the cross. Now he commissions the 12. One item to note here is in the growth of the apostles, there was a first call to faith, and I think our brother Luke preached on that when he started calling them. It was a call to faith, the first call. And then he called them for a lasting discipleship. And then it was followed by a call to apostleship, now to be a messenger. And in this part of the text, he is calling them to be his interns. This is like a job on the job, you know, on the job training. This is it, man. Now, Luke records a call and a delegation and ascending. So in succession, he calls them, tells them I'm giving you power. I'm delegating to you power and authority, and then he sends them to proclaim a message. We read the text, he gave them power and authority. I remember John was saying, John Muglock was saying, you know, the diploma that I got from uh, also being a PhD in uh, in engineering, I'm not sure whether that has authority and power, it's just a piece of paper. You know, I remember this. But here Jesus gave the power that he has to his disciples. But before we leave this section, uh, let us recall the message, what were they supposed to proclaim? So, yes, power, we understand that, to cast out demons, yes, power to heal, but what is, the, what is the message? And there is one singular message that Jesus has been preaching right off the bat. He quotes again, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight and blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And yet also we read in first John 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of evil. A reminder for us today is that the power of is from Christ today. today as disciples we are still called to preach but we don't have Christ to give us the power to have over demons and cure diseases wouldn't that be great if we all had the power over demons and just go to wherever we think there are you know powers that be and those who are, we go to the hospitals as Christians and proclaim the message at the same time cure them from all the diseases you know, a lot of doctors would be jobless, isn't it? <laughs> But it's not. Today, it's a different call. The call to us is to preach the gospel faithfully what Christ preached. We proclaim the same message. Jesus is the Messiah of God. Only through a repentance from sin and faith in the person and sufficiency of Christ will bring us to God's kingdom. If I could summarize just the particular first point, it is it is a view of who Jesus is, or an experience, if you will, via the commanding power over the natural and spiritual that validates the proclamation of the word. Um, sparring, our friends. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so coming off from that uh, successful um, sending. There is a segue to this, because now people start talking about Jesus. And so Herod, who is the tetrarch of Galilee, incidentally, um, Luke captures uh, his Bible accurately as a tetrarch, not as a king that was captured by Matthew, I think, because Matthew heard that he claims to be king. But Tetrarch means a ruler of a fort of the region. So he's the ruler of Galilee. And we'll pick that up later because Herod, and to distinguish him from his father, who is Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king at that time when Jesus was born. But Herod was just so insecure, the Great, with his kingship that when he was about to die, he split the whole kingdom into four. One was given to Herod the Great, which is the ruler of Galilee, and then the others were given to two other sons, and the other to another guy, which is, I think, if not mistaken, the northern, northwestern part of, of Galilee. So, you will remember, um, last week, um, we heard of two men, uh, of Jairus and his faith, and with a different response to Jesus, because jesus commended jairus for his faith now we are face to face with a man who has a different view of jesus you will also remember we spoke about the parable of the sower. so here you have two different responses to who jesus is different types of soil if i could just follow the the of thought of the parable who then is just a bit of background who is herod Antipas. So here, Herod is one of the sons. Um, He is the metaphor of Galilee. The others are ruled ruled by Archelaus. that's Judea, where Jerusalem is, Judea, Judah, Samaria, and Edomia. Philip, and that's the reason why uh, we call Caesarea Philippi, because there are two Caesareas. One is in the south and the other one is in the northeast of Galilee. And so he had to name it after himself to distinguish it from Caesarea in the south. So Caesarea had, sorry for pronouncing, Iteria and Chaconitis. You will find these names when John the Baptist was born. Both sons of Herod the Great. And then finally a guy by the name of Lysias. Now Herod was the direct audience of John the Baptist preaching in Luke 3. That cost him his life. He reproved him in Luke 3 on the account of his adulterous relationship and that cost him his head. But listen, John's message is consistent with Jesus' message. It's a preaching of proclamation of repentance. Without repentance, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice the question as well. Let us read the. Let us read the text. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all about what was happening, and he was the word used here is perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. I'm not sure if you will. His first reaction is just perplexed, but there, could could there be a reason for fear? Because he beheaded John, and if John is now alive. Um, <sighs> And yeah, you know, um, and then some, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others, one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, "John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things?" And he sought to see him. Please take note: he did not ask, "Who are these twelve men?" He asked. Who is this man? The man and the message. That was who Harold And also, he asked if in the last passage, part of the passages, he sought to see him. And he will get his audience, if you go later to look in the end of Luke in the trial, is that he continues questioning him and trying to seek science, as if he wants some more entertainment. Because, you know, like, miracles after miracles. And so, I want to know him more. But scripture never tells us that Herod converted to Christ. Never. Also, this same question that Herod asks is probably the most important question. And it has not been asked just by Herod. If you look back in five, Luke 5, the scribes and the Pharisees ask. In Luke seven, this time the disciples of John the Baptist. You remember, he sent them to jail. Uh, jail. Uh, the, the the disciples from uh, John asked his disciples, "Can you ask him if he is the one? Who are you?" Yeah. And those at the dinner table in Luke seven. Then the disciples again after he calmed the storm. Remember, who is this man who calms the storm? And then from Jesus himself, which we later read in verse 18, who do you say I am? And again, the chief priests, scribes, and elders in Luke 20 and 22. It's the same question that people ask today. Who is this man? Does anyone of us within us still ask that question? Within our gathering today. I am not sure if you do, because knowing Jesus is not just an intellectual ascent. And we will find that later. Yes, we may know, we may read, and yet we don't listen to his message. We will see later on that the people did not resent his miracles. In fact, they followed him for it, but they resented his message. They resented him for who he is we move on to we move on to Bethsaida, where he moves from from the place that he, he is at, at heron's time and he crosses the river so there is again an intervening passage here luke does not tell us what happened before there are only two miracles in the four gospels that they speak of only two. One is the feeding of this five thousand and the other is the resurrection of Christ. And we read verse 10. On their return the apostles told him that all they had done. He took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place But he said to them you give them something to eat they said but we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people that's quite a lot And and the original text is strictly males. It's not man in generic. So by all accounts, some people estimate that the number of people there is anywhere from 15 to about 25,000, depending on the number of children who, who belong to each of the families. Yeah. And assuming all those men are married with family. You know, they just like for a quick estimate. But for, the, for there were about 5,000 men, And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Just a little bit of a comment, this is probably the largest and the most massive miracle and the high point of Jesus' ministry in the whole of Galilee. It demonstrates not only his power, but his compassion. The miracles of Jesus were to prove that he is God, but also demonstrate the compassion of God on human suffering because of the effects of sin. we look at verse 16, uh, and this is the high point of the miracle. He kept giving them to the disciples. Incidentally, the other parallel passages said it was Andrew, I think it was Andrew or Philip, 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 who was the one who found that there were five loaves and two fish, and they said, you know, we, we cannot obviously feed them with just these two. And we cannot buy you know this is like more than so much wages so food just kept coming out of the hand of our lord and proves this is the messiah and it's some people criticize that you know jesus looked up and by some spell he cast a spell and but when we look at the verses the word used there in this particular passage is the word that is used for the word eulogy which is to thank and if you look at john's gospel is the Greek word Eucharist from where we get the word Eucharist which is to thank. He was essentially just doing what a Jewish person would do. Thank, it, thank God for it. And then he kept giving and bread just came. I don't know if fish as well but it's, everything kept coming out of his hand. And they were fed and they were satisfied. Verse 10 we go back shows how sensitive Jesus is to the need of the people. In fact, in Mark six thirty-one, Jesus asked them to come away and rest. In verse 11, Jesus says, it says Jesus welcomed them because he was moved with compassion as in Mark. And, and here's a display of common grace. You have 15 to 25,000 people and Jesus, if there is one guy in that it's in that situation who knows the hearts of his people whether they will accept him or not it's Jesus and yet he displayed common grace and compassion for them if you look back at the parable of the sower and just a quick one we learned of the different types of soil like there's a good soil there's a soil where the birds just came and picked up there's a soil that fell but then thorns and thistles come. So there are different types of soils. But one of the things you will observe in the passage is the sower indiscriminately throws the seeds. He does not choose the good soil and say, good soil, this is just you. He, He indiscriminately shares the word of God to everybody in a way he calls us to because we don't know who will the Lord call for this, uh, for in response to his call. On verse 13, there's a very interesting response to, to the question, why don't you feed them? As if saying, my friends, I just gave you power, authority, and over demons, and curing, and everything. And also, if Jesus probably would lecture them on the Old Testament, uh, you know, in Second Kings, do you remember Elijah? when he fed, you know, and the, you know, the woman said, I only have this much and this is all I've got. And the bread and the oil kept coming. If, if probably Jesus were here today, he would have naturally been the same. Ruben, I just, you know? So, the, that question comes more like with a little bit of a teaching moment and perhaps a little bit of sarcasm, if you will. Verse 13, I'm sorry. By the way, barley. Sorry, the loaves that were mentioned here are not like loaves. It appears that they are biscuits. They are small ones, and even the fish were like small fish. Because think of it, who would push? Which mother will send a child five loaves of bread and you know two fish for lunch? I mean, just I mean we, we just. Just getting through the yeah. practicalities of it. So these are not like, you know, super big, right? Like maybe in our thinking. And then they all ate and were satisfied. The original word is the word father, F-O-D-D-E-R. It's like when you feed your, uh, your animals with father, it's like so abundant to the point where, I mean, I'm really full, you know? and exactly the word satisfied is they were filled and to top it all the miracle says and here is how God works with so much precision. 12 baskets left I think it was Jesus who invented papaw and this is, uh, we had a discussion one time in Sunday school why is it 12? well there are 12 apostles, how can you just miss one? obviously you have to give them one as well so 12, by the way, there is another miracle where um, it's not shown in, in Luke, but uh, where he feeds the 4,000 later. And it's a totally different miracle. For, for one, the baskets, the baskets that were described in the original were the same type of baskets that was used to lower Paul when he was being saved from, uh, from his opponents. So, in, in that miracle, of the 4,000, the baskets were big. Here, the baskets used is a small one. So you can just take it with you. And just to distinguish the two different miracles. What is the take out from this application? Obviously, we don't see not I don't know if God will allow us to do a miracle of the 5,000, feeding the 5,000, or even our family. Yes, we, you know, we provide for them. Um, But we see here the merciful, generous hand of God, his compassion, his sympathy, his tenderness, the kindness of God even toward those who rejected Christ. And it's an example for us. We ought to walk the way he walked. We need to show mercy to the people who need rest. And rest here is, if you have a chance to read Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28 it, it's one of the most misquoted verses as well when he calls and says come unto me all you who labor and are heavily laden and I will give you rest but rest then is not the physical if you look at the context of the passage he was talking of, if you read the rendition of the message by Eugene Peterson he talks about it the way it was translated is Are you tired? Are you weary of religion? Come, and I will give you rest. And it was the religion that is being imposed by Judaism on the crowd that he is preaching to, that he he wants to give them rest. And it's not just physical, but it's more rest for their souls. We need to bring whatever relief we can to those who suffer from sickness and diseases that sin brings into the world. It goes without saying, you know, you visit them when they are sick, you you visit them in prison, you visit them when they are in need. But mostly we need to tell the people of the eternal bread of life, who is Jesus Christ. He takes care of us. He shows us the compassion of God. We should ask the Lord that we should be able to share the same compassion that God gave to those. If I were to put the, and I think I missed the summary for the first, the second point. But if you could go back to your notes with Heron, I am so sorry. And just for the sake of remembering the point on Heron, we have a crown, confused, challenged, and perhaps concerned. And in verses ten to seventeen, we find. Jesus, the compassionate creator. Let me stop there for a while because I was listening to a, a sermon on this and somebody said, look, can you, can you imagine Jesus not being regarded as creator? And then he, he described when Jesus raises people from the dead, Where do you think they got back those intestines that has been in <laughs> And we think, yeah, that's, that's for real. When, when he heals the withered hand, where does the limb come from? Where? It's not like you know some spell of magic. And the thing is, his healing is always immediate. And this points to his creative power. The same creative power that he displayed on the first six days that he created mankind. We go then to verse 18 to 22. And this one I will tell you the title. Earlier, a confession of the apostles. Okay. A confession of the apostles. Let me read the text. It came about that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So here, Jesus asks two questions. It's addressed both to the disciples. The key question actually is in verse 20 when he asks the disciples, you, who do you say that I am? And with that question, Jesus confronted his apostles with the most critical issue that ever faced them or ever faced a human being, the question of the identity of Christ. Life's most important question. It's not just an issue that affects your belief. It's not just an issue that affects your lifestyle. It affects your eternal destiny. All souls that live on this planet are in a way accountable to God for their answer to that question. Even if they don't yet know the answer, they are accountable to answer. And the wrong answer either damns them forever or brings them to eternal bliss. Here we look at the testimony of The apostles coming from um, their experiences and Peter responds you are the Christ of God this is not the first time that Jesus has been so identified but this is the final first time and the final clear precise statement from the apostles collectively that they affirm that he is indeed the Messiah they have already affirmed that he is Lord, when they, he delegated the power to them, that he is Lord over nature, and world, healer, life giver, that he had the words of life, and that there was no one else to go to. They called him Lord, Master, Teacher. They have given him these different titles. But here, the word is Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. It, it, let's take this back a little bit, because the flow of the gospel looks, uh, of the gospel of Luke, from the previous verse of feeling of the crowd, um, didn't really follow each other in chronological order. As I mentioned, he skipped some of the details in between, between the feeling of the 5,000 to the point where he takes them. In fact, it's almost you know when you read the gospel, you will find learn. You, you never cease to amaze us, your humor is just so wonderful and it's just so frightening because and, and let me tell you, in, in between the feeding of the 5000 to, to this point where he calls them and, and he asks him this question, there are so many things that happen, one of which is again you know Jesus went to a solitary place and prayed and the disciples were out on the lake again and You remember last week, our brother Peter, you know, that Jesus was sleeping in the boat, and then there was a storm. This time, Jesus was praying in the mountain, and there's another storm. And then, probably, not again, you know, it's another storm. And and this time, Jesus was walking on the water. He decided, it was the account in the other gospel says, it was the fourth watch, which is anywhere from 3 to 6 in the morning. And so... Jesus decided to walk on the water and decided to even overtake them, and then the disciples saw and is they were so afraid. It's a ghost, is it? And then Jesus said, "You know, fear not. It is I. It is I." And so you would think, Lord, is one storm not enough? You know, it's like come on. I, it, I it already, all, I almost lost my life to heart attack the first one, but here, it's like, and, and the Lord just. Never ceased to amaze his disciples. So he also had to go, before that, he also had to go to a place in the north, in Tyre and Sidon, and this is where he healed a woman, the Syro Phoenician woman, before he goes back to the other side, which is in Caesarea Philippi. So Matthew fills in the blanks of what happened between the feeding of the crowd and the affirmation of the disciple. This is also recorded in Mark 6, if you want to take a look, through Mark 8, 26. So you can see that it covers a lot of chapters in reality. So we are told that at this point when he asks the confession of Peter, there are only eight months to go before his crucifixion. So between the time of 18, when he calls them, 18 months into his 36, yeah, three years, 36 years of ministry, 18 months, 36 months of ministry, he already spent on the time when he called the disciples and sent them. And then now, between that time, there are only eight months to go before his death. So now he asked him, in the account of, in the other parallel account where Jesus walked on the water, he boarded, he boarded the boat from the water, and the gospel reports it is there that they worship him. Probably, they finally caught it that he is the Messiah. He doesn't say here, but here he asks the confession, who do you say that I am? Let us just go back a little bit. The answer of the multitude says you. He some say you are John the Baptist. Some say you are Elijah. There was even an account that says you are Jeremiah. And because these are Jews, they remember the prophecy. They said that for some reason God will bring back Elijah and and John. And so in their mind, you could be that guy. It's not a bad answer, isn't it? But he has been saying all along, I am the Christ. He when, when you look at Matthew 5, Matthew 5, when he starts his Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, Matthew records in detail something that looks insignificant. If you look at Matthew when you go home, he says he went on, a, on the hills and then he sat down and he started teaching and the teaching was about the upside down kingdom of God, the Beatitudes and essentially Jesus takes the posture of a rabbi and then essentially says talks about Moses and talks about him the new Moses that's the impact of the just that section and so here Jesus has been saying all along me I, I am the one and then the, still they the point in Luke 825, as our brother Peter mentioned, Luke has set in motion a flow to force the answer to this question and it doesn't serve his purpose to stick between that great miracle of feeding the 5,000 and to answer the question, it does seem to be a big jump, isn't it? if you don't see what happened in between, and that's why we look at the other gospels to understand what has really happened, but here he forces them to answer the question. He wants them to come to the right answer of the question because in the ministry of Jesus, that's the question that began to circulate. Who is this man? Still, the question compels cults and Muslims. And even you know, those who, have, who believe that they are of the faith, have Bibles in their gifts, and yet, they have a different answer. To that particular question and you think well, what, what is what is wrong with this guys how how can how can they miss the point how can they miss jesus and there is there is an answer that is given in in, in the book of john that says unless my father draws them to me then they will not come and so again in this um, if we look diligently in the Gospel of Luke in in Luke 1 he, he is called the Son of the Most High the Son of God in Luke chapter 2 he is called the Savior Christ God in Luke 4 he is called the Holy One of God the Son of God Christ in the end of Luke 22, he is Christ, son of man, son of God. His titles have been made clear up front. So, again, we say, yeah, so they missed the whole question. What in the world would cause them not to believe? In John twelve forty-two, he says, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Do you still remember one of the soils? One of the soils where you know it grew but then there are thorns and thistles. Here if, if you if you actively remove yourself from the Judaism, the faith of Judaism then it's not just getting out of the religion You're getting out of the community. They're kicking you out. It's your life. It's your job. It could mean anything. And it's true today, even with Christians. If you profess to follow Christ, we could be out of the job, depending on the situation. And so, in Luke 2.26 as well, it says, it has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, That before he had, this is to, uh, uh, I think, Zechariah, or Zacharias. That before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Yeah. We talk about him as our Messiah. He is our God's anointed, God's chosen. And this is one of the observations you will see here is that he is the Christ of God. He is not the Christ of man. He is the Messiah of God. He is not our. We did not choose him. God chose him to be His own, and His baptism. The Lord said, "Thou art My beloved Son." It's a very possessive description. In Acts three eighteen, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all His prophets that His Christ should suffer, that is His Christ. In Acts four twenty six, the kings of the earth took their stand the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed. There is a bit of an application here when we claim, um, when we look at our relationship with Christ that we should treat Christ very carefully. He is God's anointed. He is not our anointed. He is not anointed by any other. And so sometimes you think Could this be the sin against the Holy Spirit that is unforgivable? And probably yes. Because you reject the Christ, the anointed one of God, then you reject his gift of pardon. In just reading again the text, if you look at the, the last line of the text, Jesus warns them, and you would think, um, what, why, why didn't Jesus warn them? He said deliberate uh, specifically. And there were two words that were used here. He, the word warned and charged. He actually, and in the original, this is a a military command. Again, if we live in his Jesus time, if you are in an army, in the Roman army, if you disobey the commandment. it is it is death. so this is a very very strong term do not tell them anything commentators suggest it's categorically timing and there are two elements to this one it's a time of judgment remember he is now moving and moving away from Galilee this will be the last time that he is in that area and so he will be going and his twin journey to Jerusalem. And in a sense, it is enough. So, he says, look, do not tell them. I've, we've done our part. Secondly, he said, this isn't really the time. Because my time has, remember when he says, the Son of Man has yet to suffer. It's not yet done. And there's a big, if we, maybe we don't, we may not be able to see this, but Remember, Jesus fed the 5,000. He cured the sick. Now, everybody thinks that he is, is the Messiah. Why don't we you know, organize ourselves and ban ourselves and create a political party and overthrow this guy? And, and that's a, a very huge possibility to the point where he said, because they know their hearts. Somebody made a comment like, this is the perfect welfare state when you have your boss as somebody who provides food every day, who provides, I mean, everything you need, no diseases, and people are raised from the dead, and it's the perfect welfare state. So I think we can make him as our savior, not the savior of our hearts, but the savior of our political situation. So here Jesus cautions them two things do not tell them, he instructed them. And so, it ends in a relatively, it's almost like a, not a very clear ending at this stage. But then, we will take this later when we go to, because the next phase here is when Jesus, we see Jesus in the transfiguration, and then he moves on to Jerusalem. But just Having it all, it's not even halfway through the Book of Luke. We're just Chapter Nine, and there are, only, there are only eight months away. And then, in, in this sense, there is a hardness of heart that we see in much of the people he ministered to. And so he didn't want to sh- start a revolution around a false concept of what the Messiah is and what he does. You would even think did, when Peter replied. You are the Christ. This, you know, The full version is in Matthew. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The, the full version. You would even guess was, what was Peter's heart? What was in his mind? Was it truly a full confession? And we said that in the previous storm, that is when they really got it. And so it's a question we ask today. Is our knowledge of Jesus just purely on an intellectual level even within us and among us have we really put our faith in Christ. In the last uh, um,
1: in the miracle
0: of the feeding of the 5,000 John the book of John writes a most interesting discussion this is where Jesus makes one of the iron claims in John 6 to 635 he says, I am the bread of life. This is the Jesus who is the Christ of God. In John 8 12, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10 9, he says, I am the door. In John 10 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And then in John eleven twenty five, one of my favorite lines, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In John 15, one, I am divine. And one of the ones that we don't count as one of the seven is when he was conversing with the Pharisees when he says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly I say to you, in John 8, 58, before Abraham was Let us just wrap this up in conclusion. So, a span of 18, 10 months in the verses 1 to 22. And the key question continues to be who is Jesus? And still asked and answered today by every person who hears the gospel or anyone who reads the Bible. If anyone, including anyone within this room, is Willfully blind to the truth Refuse to believe what the word of God says about Jesus The God of Christ Or the Christ of God His life His work His message He will not be And will not acknowledge the diagnosis of his or his own Heart's sinfulness As well as the condemnation to eternal hell And that salvation is through faith in him alone Then he or she will come to the wrong conclusion about Jesus.